Section 5 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bosom of Mary, Part 2. The divine decrees came onward in their mysterious slowness. They appeared on earth and then paused, as it seemed, for fifteen years, and then, as it were, leapt precipitately and out of course to their fulfilment. There is almost always this double appearance, first of slowness and then of precipitation in all divine works. It is a characteristic of them, the pondering of which will reward us when we have leisure to do so. It is as if wisdom waited and was slow, till love called in omnipotence to its aid, and forthwith gained its end. Meanwhile, we must wait on the grand decree which is trembling, on the very verge of its accomplishment. The eternal word is about to assume his created nature. All things are subordinate to this. The magnificence of Mary is but his road, his instrument, his means. Her magnificence is simply in her ministering. The day, the hour, the place, the messenger, all come at last, for his beautiful created home is ready for him, shining with the greatness of its graces, fragrant with the perfume of its holiness. The day has come. According to our counting, it is Friday, the 25th of March. Why has it been so long delayed? This is a mystery which does not concern us. Why is it that preparation always forms so much greater a part of the Creator's works than it does of the creature's? Is it wholly for the creature's sake, or is it indicative of some perfection in the Creator? It is at least a disclosure of His character which fixes our attention and is not without its influence on our conduct. Why was he so long in preparing the world for the habitation of man? What means the old age of the lifeless rocks? Wherefore were those vast epochs of gigantic foliage, as if it were not beneath the minute considerateness of his love to be laying in wealth and power for generations of unborn men? Why were land and sea distributed and redistributed again and again, as if he were a fastidious artist, who could not please himself, because he could not express his idea, except through repeated experiments. What end did those secular periods of huge sea-monsters and terrific creeping things subserve? Why was man so late a birth in the epoch of those perfect animals, which were either his predecessors or his companions? Why should earth have to be the teeming burial-ground of dynasties dethroned and tribes extinct, before the true life for which it was meant came upon it? Who can tell? Perhaps it was not so, but if it was so, it was his will. The delay in the incarnation is parallel to what geology professes to reveal to us of the fitting and adorning and retouching of the planet, if that can be called retouching, which was doubtless the simple development of a vast and tranquil uniformity. But the day came at last, the 25th of March, ever memorable among men as the date of the incarnation, there was doubtless some deep and beautiful reason why it was not on the 24th or on the 26th, and why it should be on the anniversary of Adam's fall and hereafter of the crucifixion. There was doubtless some deep reason, because God has no surface, all things are deep which are in him. But of the chosen day the first moment was chosen also, the stars had scarcely marked the midnight in the sky when the decree accomplished itself. Perhaps the greatest silence of created things, the hush of the nocturnal earth, was most suited to the Creator's coming, 
just as it was in the cool Sabbath-like evenings that he used to walk with Adam in the old Asiatic paradise. Goodness also, like evil, though for opposite reasons, affects darkness and obscurity. God seems marvellously to shun witnesses. The resurrection manifests this to us, that unwitnessed mystery, the witnessing of which was nevertheless to be a main function of the College of Apostles. Yet they even were only allowed to bear witness not to its taking place, but to its having undoubtedly taken place. So it is in science, in all questions of life, in the creation of species, in God's viewness omnipresence, in the operation of his supernatural sacraments, in the actual communications of grace, in all positive contacts with him, our research is baffled on the very threshold of discovery. We just reach the point where we should see God the next moment, and without any visible obstacles, without walls or rocks or any palpable fences, we are mysteriously stayed. We can advance no further. We seem to hear the sound of God working almost to feel his breath, but he will not be witnessed. He remains invisible. As it is in his lesser works, so was it in this his greatest. He came in the dark night when men were unsuspecting. Yet he did not take them by surprise, for when the morning broke, he did not even tell them that he had come. Do we not know ourselves that although we are God's creatures and creation is full to overflowing of him, and is meant to raise us to him, we nevertheless feel we are most with God when least occupied with his outward creation and draw nearest to him in proportion as we draw back furthest from creatures. So on his side he seems to keep aloof even when he is coming in closest contact with us. He shrinks from view whose blaze we could not bear. The place where the word's assumption of his created nature was to be effected was the inner room or woman's apartment of the holy house of Nazareth where Mary and Joseph dwelt. It was an obscure dwelling of humble poverty in a rustic, sequestered village of a small land, whose days of historic glory had passed away, and whose destiny, in the onward march of civilization, would seem, as philosophical historians would speak, to be exhausted. The national independence of the people had come to an end. The questions which divided their sects were narrow and trivial. Jerusalem, long since eclipsed by Athens and outgrown by Alexandria, sat now humbled and silent beneath the sombre shade of Rome. Even in this land, Nazareth was almost a byword of contempt. Folds of pastoral green hills shut it up within itself, and its men were known beyond their own hills only for a coarse and fierce rusticity, with perhaps a reputation for something worse. The eternal God was about to become a Nazarene. He whose eye saw down into every wooded hollow and penetrated every sylvan glen upon the globe, who saw the white walls of fair cities perched jealously on their hilltops or basking in the sunshine by the blue sea, chose that ill-famed, inglorious Nazareth for the scene of his great mystery. Who can deem that aught with God is accidental, or that anything happened as it might chance to happen with the central wonder of the Incarnation? It was his choice, and to us, Nazareth and its holy house, exiled, wandering, and angel-born, Syrian, Dalmatian, Italian, all by turns, are consecrated places, doubly consecrated by their old memories, and also by their strange, continued life of local graces, 
and the efficacious balm of a divine presence, awful and undecayed. The occupations of that holy house at Nazareth must not pass unnoticed. The minutest feature in the most ordinary circumstance of the Creator's assumption of a created nature must be full of significance. From the gospel narrative of the Annunciation we should infer that Mary had received no warning of what was about to happen, still less, therefore, of the time when the mystery should be accomplished. Great events commonly cast a peaceful trouble into great souls before they come, as if there was, deep down in heroic natures, something like a natural gift of prophecy. Such vibrations, awakening yet indistinct, may have thrilled through Mary's soul. Otherwise the mystery took her unawares, and, till the moment came, the greatness of her science and the wonder of her conscious holiness had not so much as excited a suspicion in her beautiful humility. Her unpreparedness thus gives a greater significance to her occupations at the time. The night was still and calm around her. We know not whether Joseph was wakefully pondering on the divine mercies, or whether that man of heavenly dreams was resting from the toils of the artisan's rude day in holy sleep. When the shadow of the everlasting decree stole upon her, Mary, the wonderful and chosen creature, was alone, and according to the universal belief, immersed in prayer. She was spending the hours of the silent night in closest union with God. Her spirit, then, as always, was doubtless raised in ecstasy to heights of rapturous contemplation. It was in the act of her prayer that the word took possession of his created home. It was perhaps the immense increase of merit, and so the immense increase of her interior beauty, in that very prayer which ended the delay and precipitated the glorious mystery. It was perhaps one of her intense aspirations— an aspiration into which her whole soul and all the might of its purity were thrown, that drew the everlasting Son so suddenly at last from the bosom of the Father. How often have the desires of the saints been their own immediate fulfilment because of their intensity? But what desire ever had such intensity as Mary's yearning for Messiah, unless, indeed, it were his own eternal longing for his created nature? It was at least in an hour of awe-stricken worship that God visited her. Her created spirit was busied in adoration when the uncreated came and took his flesh and blood and dwelt within her. In all this too we see the fashion of God's ways. Yet his coming was not abrupt. He sent his messenger before he came himself. We know nothing of the antecedents of the individual angels, but Gabriel appears throughout Scripture in the days of Daniel as well as those of Mary to be the angel of the Incarnation. There was doubtless something in his own character, something in his special graces, something in the part he had taken against the rebellious angels which peculiarly fitted him for this office, to which also he had unquestionably been predestinated from all eternity. It implies an extreme beauty of character and a special relationship to each of the three divine persons, and also a peculiar angelical similitude to Mary. He had been throughout the official herald of the decrees regarding the Incarnation, and he appears at this time in the midnight room at Nazareth because the weeks of Daniel have run out, and he is preceding now, hardly by a moment, the everlasting decrees. But what is the especial purpose for which he has come? to ask in the name of God for Mary's consent to the Incarnation. The Creator will not act in this great mystery without His creature's free consent. 
Her freedom shall be a glorious reflection of his own ineffable freedom in the act of creation. The Omnipotent stands in ceremony with his feeble, finite creature. He has already raised her too high to be but a blind instrument. Moreover, the honour of his own assumption of a created nature is concerned in the liberty wherewith creation shall grant him what he requires. He would not come claiming his rights or using his prerogatives. Sometimes we have seen the tide pile up its weltering waves, one upon another, as if it were building a tower of water, before some insignificant obstacle which the pressure of one rolling billow would have driven before it far up the sounding beach. This is a picture to us of the moment of the Incarnation. Innumerable decrees of God, decrees without number like the waves of the sea, decrees that included or gave forth all other decrees, came up to the midnight room at Nazareth, as it were to the feet of that most wonderful of God's creatures, with the resistless momentum which had been given them from eternity, all glistening with the manifold splendours of the divine perfections, like huge billows just curling to break upon the shore, and they stayed themselves there, halted in full course, and hung their accomplishment upon the maiden's word. It was an awful moment, it was fully in Mary's power to have refused, Impossible as the consequences seemed to make it, the matter was with her, and never did free creature exercise its freedom more freely than did she that night. How the angels must have hung over that moment! With what adorable delight and unspeakable complacency did not the Holy Trinity await the opening of her lips, the fiat of her whom God had evoked out of nothingness, and whose own fiat was now to be music in his ears, creation's echo to that fiat of his at whose irresistible sweetness creation itself sprang into being. Earth only, poor, stupid, unconscious earth, slept in its cold moonshine. That Mary could have any choice at all is a complete revelation of God in itself. How a creature so encompassed and cloistered in grace could have been free in any sense to do that which was less pleasing to God is a mystery which no theology to be met with has ever yet satisfactorily explained. Nevertheless, the fact is beyond controversy. She had this choice with the uttermost freedom in her election, in some most real sense of freedom. But who could doubt what the voice would be, which should come up out of such abysses of grace as hers? There had not been yet on earth nor in the angel's world an act of adoration so nearly worthy of God, as that consent of hers, that conformity of her deep lowliness to the magnificent and transforming will of God. But another moment, and there will be an act of adoration greater far than that. Now God is free. Mary has made him free. The creature has added a fresh liberty to the Creator. She has unchained the decrees, and made the sign, and in their procession, like mountainous waves of light, they broke over her in floods of golden splendour. The eternal sea laved the queenly creature all around, and the divine complacency rolled above her in majestic peals of soft, mysterious thunder, and a godlike shadow falls upon her for a moment, and Gabriel has disappeared, and without shock or sound or so much as a tingling stillness, God, in a created nature, sat in his immensity within her bosom, and the eternal will was done, and creation was complete." Far off a storm of jubilee swept, far-flashing through the angelic world. But the mother heard not, heeded not, her head sank upon her bosom, and her soul lay down in a silence which was like the peace of God. 
the Word was made flesh. Even to us in the retrospect it is a moment of unutterable gladness. Love ponders it many times when the world presses heavily and life goes wearily, when all things but God give way because they are void and empty and our pursuits are like the coloured ends of rainbows, seen through even while we pursue them and always receding before us as we advance. Then we find such rest and such sufficiency and such transcending calm in God that love weeps over the weakness of its own worship and frets with a tranquil fretfulness because it cannot love him more. It is then that the first act of love of the sacred heart of Jesus rises consolingly to our remembrance. It was a finite act, and yet of value infinite. Then first was the blessed majesty of God worshipped as it deserved to be. His glory lay outspread in all its broad perfection, in all its unembraced immensity, and that first act of love embraced it. Its worship was as broad as the uncomprehended breadth that lay before it. To our thoughts, to the foolishness of our venturous thoughts as finite beings, there was something desolate in that creatureless eternity of God. It was not an uncompanioned life because of the three divine persons in one God. But worship is our highest thought, and there is something dreary in the idea of an unworshipped splendour, something appalling, like a scene oppressively sublime, in an unworshipped God. It is our own foolishness, our own littleness. Yet what vent has love except in worship? We turn from our own worship of God as beneath even the complacency of our own vainglory. We think with joy of the saints and of the angels, whose adoration reaches so much nearer to the throne. Mary's worship of God is all but rest to our eagerness to see him loved exceedingly and worthily. But love's rest, love's sweet satiety, is in the worship of the sacred heart and there alone. So that, in the first moment of the Incarnation, not only were the amazing decrees of everlasting wisdom fulfilled and creation with incredible magnificence completed, but the creation thus completed turned round, as it were, to the face of the Creator, and worshipped Him with a worship equal to Himself. When the heart is sick because truths are diminished among the children of men, and the weight of unintelligibly triumphant and abundant sin lies heavy on it, and the mind is dragged through thorny places till it bleeds, then the frightened soul flies back to that moment of the first love of Jesus, and rests there with the more full assurance and abiding calm, because it knows that that first act of love is not ended yet. It has stretched from that old midnight at Nazareth to this hour, and is not weakened by the stretch. It can bear the weight of millions of new creations. It will wear for untold eternities. Old as it is, it is new still. It is unending. Its arms are round the majesty of God. Its kiss is on his feet for evermore. Thus had the eternal word begun his created life on earth. He had taken possession of that fair home which he had predestinated for himself from everlasting. He had begun to live a life so full and broad and deep, that if all the lives of angels and men ran into one confluent stream, they would make but an insignificant and impoverished rill compared with the flood of real, enduring, solid, efficacious life which was his. It was a life without intermittence, without experiments, without failures, without inequalities. It was always at high tide, always succeeding, always reaching the ends at which it aimed, 
always fulfilling its purposes in the loftiest manner. It was a life without advance, without growth, beginning with its fullness both of science and of grace. It was a life which had measures, but its measures were practically immeasurable. Its worth was infinite, even while it was not absolutely infinite itself. It was a life also which comprehended all lives, both of angels and of men, touched them, vivified them, ennobled them, immortalized them. It ran over and abounded in mysteries, in merits, in satisfactions. It was the perpetual plenary indulgence of all other life that ever was. It was a life of the most absorbed contemplation, and at the same time of the most beneficent and heroic activity. It was a life of incomparable intellectual excellence, of unsurpassed moral wisdom, and of unexampled sanctity. It was a life so real and so true, so self-conscious and substantial, creating, perfecting, consolidating so much, that all other life, by the side of it, is but a shadow of life, a bare taking hold and letting go again, a mere ineffectual clutching of the hands in sleep. It was the life on which all noble, manful, divine lives were to be modelled, and moreover it contained the energetic cause and efficacious prophecy of all such lives within itself. Such was the existence which began that night in Mary's bosom. If we look at it in the general, so as to get a view of its characteristics, it seems to us, first of all, a life of oblation. Worship was its predominant idea. Adoration was the mould in which it was cast. It continually reflected God, yet it was not a private life, not a life which looked only to God and itself, and so was sanctified. Its oblations were not simply its individual worship of God, but they belonged to all creation and were offered in its name. They were coextensive with creation, they covered all the ground which created worship could cover, and satisfied all the claims of the Creator. In this life oblation was not so much a distinct virtue as the attitude of all its virtues. Its destiny was that of a victim, and from its place and bearing as victim it never stirred for one moment, not even when it was working miracles. It contained within itself the infinite materials of an infinite and endless sacrifice. The business set before it was to consume these materials perpetually for the glory of God. Thus it was incense as well as victim, incense ever rising up with all co-mingled aromas of created sanctity before the throne on high. It was always burning and never burned itself away. Its human soul was the thurible in which it was fragrantly consumed, offered, asleep or waking, by night or day, with every pulse of its human life. It was the priest also, as well as the victim and the incense, with a divine bravery it slew itself. It was incessantly slaying itself and delighting in the slow martyrdom. The unction of an eternal priesthood was upon it, raising its self-sacrifice far above the level of mortal heroism. The mere thought that created life, a human life, should have reached the height which that life reached. The mere thought that created life, a human life, should have reached the height which that life reached, is a joy forever. This was the grand characteristic of the life, its posture of oblation, its ever-smoking, unconsumed sacrifice, its ministration at its own altar. Then it was also a life of imprisonment. Broad, exulting, magnificent as it was, it was imprisoned. It was imprisoned while it was outflowing over all creation. Confinement in the little created home of Mary's bosom was the lot of that which was almost infinite. Darkness was around the life which was the beacon of all ages. 
the far-reaching light of all created spirits. Obscurity environed that life over which the angels were keeping jubilee, and which was in God's eye as though it were no less than all creation, including, comprehending, imaging, surpassing all. Its energy needed not the limits of our activity. A cloistered life among men may cover the whole earth with its activity, if it be a life of worship, while the conqueror, the statesman, or the man of letters have at most but a circle which they only influence partially, and in which their influence is but one of many influences. Worship alone is power, intellectual power and moral power, the power of worldwide change and of all beneficent revolution. We not only learn this lesson from the life of confinement, which the incarnate word led in Mary's bosom, but it is that life which gives our life power to become universal like itself. It was a life of silence also. The great teacher, the utterer of the marvellous parables, the preacher of the world-stirring sermons, the oracle whose single words have become vocations, institutions and histories, finds silence no bar to the fertility of his action. Silence has ever been, as it were, the luxury of great holiness, which implies that it contains something divine within itself. So it is the first life which he, the eternally silent spoken word of the Father, chooses for himself. All his afterlife was coloured by it. In his childhood he let speech seem to come slowly to him, as if he were acquiring it like others, so that under this disguise he might prolong his silences, delaying thus even his colloquies with Mary. Mary also herself and Joseph caught from him, as by a heavenly contagion, a beautiful taciturnity. In his eighteen years of hidden life, silence still prevailed in the holy house of Nazareth. Words, infrequent and brief, trembled in the air like music, which was too sweet for one strain to efface another, while the first still vibrating in the listening ear. In the three years' ministry, which was given up to talking and teaching, he spoke as a silent man would speak, or like a god making revelations. Then, in his passion, when he had to teach by his beautiful way of suffering, silence came back again, just as an old habit returns at death, and became once more a characteristic feature of his life. So now he, who was the expressive eloquence of all the hidden grandeurs of the father, was mute and dumb in Mary's bosom. It was a life also of weakness, Helplessness, humiliation, and a kind of shame were round about him. He chose them as his first created state. This choice was one of the primary laws of the Incarnation, as a mission to fallen man. He clung to it through the three and thirty years. He made it to be the supernatural condition of his church, that sort of continual triumphant defeat in which her life so visibly consists. He perpetuated it for himself in the Blessed Sacrament, it was as if weakness was so new to omnipotence that there was an attraction in its novelty. To show forth power in weakness, to be feeble, and yet to be strong also, and not only strong together with the weakness, but actually because of it, this was to display one of those hidden and nameless perfections in God, which we should perhaps never have seen, except by the light of the Incarnation, though by that light we see it now in nature also." Yet what was the strength of all creation to that single created weakness of his? All the world's helpfulness was but a ray out of his helplessness. No man's work, be it for himself or for his fellows, has any true strength in it, 
No man's strength is anything better than effort and gesticulation, except the weakness of Christ have touched it, nerved it, and made it manful with a heavenly manfulness. What are half the literatures and philosophies in the world but gesticulation, men in attitudes which affect nothing, voices raised to screaming partly from irritation at the sense of omnipotence, and partly to save appearances, and counterfeit strength by noise? The strong man is he who has gone deepest down into the weakness of Christ. The enduring work is that which Christ's humiliation has touched secretly, and made it almost omnipotent. His life in Mary's bosom was also a life of poverty. This is perhaps the most notable among all his predilections. He loved poverty among things, as he loved Mary among persons. It was an acting out in the multiplicity of creation, the unity of the Creator. The soul is hampered by material helps, strength is in fewness, work lies in singleness of purpose, the victory is with him who has nothing to lose, and if so be, needs less than the nothing he has got. Though God himself is untold wealth, riches are not godlike. For it is not so much that God has wealth, as that he is his own wealth. They are rich who possess God, but they are richest who possess nothing but God. All creation belongs to him, to whom God is the sole possession. The idea of wealth would uncrown Jesus in our minds, and desecrate the sacredness of the Incarnation. Humanity, at its highest point of holiness, is ever enamoured of poverty, yet it was almost more as God than as man that Jesus put riches away from his sacred humanity. For his poverty went further than created riches. Although he had so marvellously endowed his human nature with the riches of the Godhead, there were many mysterious ways in which during his whole life, and especially in his passion, he put aside from his sacred humanity even the riches of his Godhead, and the legitimate, we might have said, inevitable inheritance of the hypostatic union, as if even that wealth were an encumbrance. Look at the eternal word, first in the bosom of the Father, and then in the bosom of Mary, and say whether a lower depth of poverty can be conceived. Is it not one of those things which comes so nigh to a change in the unchangeable, that we hardly see how it is not a change? Such was the character of the life which God began to lead in his own creation, as soon as ever he had assumed his created nature. It is surely a most unexpected one, and full of disclosures which take away our breath by their divine strangeness. It is most deeply to be studied, giving us, as it does, almost an insight into the interior of God, and making us acquainted with him in a different way from his great attributes of which theology takes direct cognizance. Surely this life is a fact in history, more significant than all its other facts put together. Nay, rightly considered, it is itself the true significance of those other facts. But let us pass from his manner of life to his actual occupations, and endeavour to construct a biography of the eternal word during those nine months in Mary's bosom. End of section 5